Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, morning, New City Church. Uh, Good morning to all of those online around the world. Thank you for joining us this morning from wherever you are, Norman to Australia and beyond, right? Uh, This morning we are covering the sixth of the seven letters, the letter to Philadelphia. We've gone through five so far and Now we're going to tackle the second letter that has nothing bad said about it from our Lord Jesus. So to start, let's just open up and read the letter. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, In the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so there's the letter to Philadelphia. This is the, the sixth of seven letters, and so we're getting close to the end of the seven letters. And then we'll be jumping into... The vision of the throne room of the universe starting in chapter 4 and beyond for the rest of that 70th week of Daniel. So just as a reminder, we have these same elements in each of the seven letters. We have the four applications and then the seven elements in each of the letters. So we're going to break these down and go through these. The local church in that time, the application to all churches, our personal application, the prophetic profile of all church history in advance that Jesus lays out in these seven letters. And then the seven elements, the name, the title of Jesus used from chapter one, a commendation, a concern, an exhortation, a promise to the overcomer, and a closing phrase. And so what we're gonna notice is we've gone through one, there are four letters of the seven, two of which have nothing good said about them and two of which have nothing bad said about them. We've covered one of each. This is the second letter that has nothing bad said about it. So we'll notice there's no concern from our Lord in this letter. And then next week as we close, 
with Laodicea, we're going to notice that there's nothing good said about that church. So the name of the church and the title of Jesus. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So the name of the church, Philadelphia, I think we all, we all know it means the city of brotherly love, right? That's, that's pretty popular and well-known. What it actually means is beloved brother. So it's a, a brother whom the Lord loves. You know, think about a beloved brother, a beloved disciple, a beloved brethren. So it's a beloved brother, someone that's close to you. And so this is how the name came to mean brotherly love, as in friendly city is kind of what we think about today. But when you go back to the root, it really means someone that the Lord loves very closely. Someone that the Lord has close to him. And there are three attributes here of Jesus. He that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David. And so these three attributes we're going to break down and really dive into. Why is it that Jesus alone has these three attributes? And so we'll look at each of these. Let's go with the first one. He that is holy. The first place in the Bible the word holy appears is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, with the burning bush. And this is Jesus speaking out of the burning bush to Moses. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. See, where Jesus is, is holy. You know, Jesus cannot dwell somewhere that is unholy, which is why to have fellowship with him you have to be holy. And the only way you have you get holiness is to attribute it to yourself from him because he alone is holy. And so later on in verse 14 in Exodus, and God said unto Moses, I am that I am. If you remember the whole dialogue with Moses and the burning bush, Jesus speaking, he, what, what attracted Moses to that bush to begin with was he was in the wilderness walking around and there's a bush on fire, it's acacia wood, and it was on fire, but not being consumed. And so it caught his eye. I mean, fires are not uncommon in the desert. There's lightning strikes and things all the time. But he sees this bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And so he goes to it. And this is Jesus speaking out of it. Now, you could go on a sidetrack and track down acacia wood all through the Bible. But it's the burning bush. It was the wood that made the Ark of the Covenant. It's likely the wood that was the thorn of crowns on Jesus' head. But there's this bush on fire, and so you literally have fire representing sin, right? And that sin, that judgment on something that's not being consumed. Again, it goes back to like the brazen serpent we talked about a while back. But Jesus tells him, I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And so... Here's the, one of my favorite names of Jesus in the entire Bible, I am. And later on, Jesus makes this statement in Joshua chapter 5 before the battle at Jericho. So you remember Joshua and Caleb lead the children of Israel across the Jericho or across the Jordan. And they're camping outside of Jericho getting ready to battle. And Joshua chapter 5 comes along and Joshua confronts this man with his sword drawn. And he says, hey, are you for us or for our enemy? And Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, and the, and the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, 
Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. And so again, you have this concept of the ground where Jesus was standing was holy. And you needed to not carry anything from the world on your feet, right? To walk into fellowship with the Lord. So holy. In John 8, this is where Jesus makes this connection to being the voice of the burning bush. In John chapter 8, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And so he makes this connection to the name I am from the voice in the burning bush, which is why the Pharisees took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. See, he's claiming to be the voice of the burning bush to be the I am, which is why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Because otherwise, they're looking at him saying, that's blasphemous, you're claiming to be God. And he is and was and is still God. So he was correct. But it's interesting that, that Jesus points back to the burning bush in this whole dialogue of them basically calling him illegitimate. When you read all of John 8, they're basically telling him, hey, where is your father? You know, they have this whole dialogue of trying to claim that he's an illegitimate son, which is why he goes back before Abraham was, I am. It's interesting that in Genesis 15, 1, it's the first place I am shows up in the Bible. In Genesis 15, 1, this is the Lord speaking to Abram before he gives him the new name, Abraham. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And I just love how Jesus connects the I am statement to Abram right there. And then in John 8, fast forward, here he is saying, before Abraham was, I am. And it's even before he gives Abram his new name. You know, when he gives him his new name, Abram and Sarai, all he does is he puts in a head, the Hebrew letter head, in the middle of their name. So Sarai becomes Sarah, Abram becomes Abraham, and literally he changes and gives them a new name by imparting the breath of God into them. That's what that head in Hebrew means it's the breath of God and the new name that whole concept is all through this letter of a new name here in the promise so holiness is it's an attribute that only he possesses you know a lot of the other attributes of Jesus you can grow in you can become more loving you can become more giving you can become more unselfish empathetic merciful graceful Etc. As you grow closer to the Lord, you can become more of those things. But only Jesus is holy, which is why it's the one attribute of him that you have to attribute from him. So you have to you have to allocate it to yourself so that you can become holy and have fellowship with the Father. So he alone, though, is the only one that is holy. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabit eternity. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And see this is it's another hint here. But Jesus the father there they alone inhabited eternity. And eternity literally being outside of time itself. Sitting outside the dimensionality of time. And so he alone is holy. His name is holy. 
And this attribute of Jesus is all over the Bible. Leviticus 11 and chapter 21, you are holy because he is holy. You know, the Father says that over and over. Isaiah 6, verses three, chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim around the throne room of the universe, around the throne room of God, de declare holy, holy, holy. And they say that all over the Bible. You know, these, the seraphim and the cherubim, these angels that are around the throne of God, always declare holy, holy, holy. And it's a link to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Revelation 6.10, we'll get there in a few weeks. Uh, the tribulational martyrs declare he is holy and true. And this is when they're under the altar of God in the throne room of the universe, crying for vengeance, crying because they were martyred. And, and they alone say, you alone are holy and true. In Luke 1, he was holy at his birth by the Holy Ghost. In Acts 2, he's holy at his death. And in Hebrews 7, he is holy as our current high priest, making intercession for us. You know, that's Jesus' role right now. As he's, he's gone to the cross for us, he's died, he's ascended to heaven. And he ever makes intercession on our behalf. And so you have the mightiest prayer warrior backing you, you could possibly have. You know, there's a lot of people in your life probably that pray for you day in and day out. But to know that Jesus is standing before the courts of heaven, ever making intercession on our behalf, in praying for us and knowing our needs before we even ask, is it just incredible? Because right now, one of his offices is our high priest. And so... When you think about Jesus as our high priest praying for us, it's just incredible. Okay, so that's holiness. Uh, he that is true, you know, Jesus, again, he's the only one that holds this attribute. He alone is truth. So Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Jesus alone is the truth and our source of truth, who is also the word of God. Remember in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so Jesus is the truth, which means the Word of God is the truth because he's the Word. And I'm just telling you, if there's any time in history where we need more truth, it's right now. Because the world is nothing but deceptive, right, in everything you do. The news, the, the facts that are out there, the way people spin things. And it's not just on one side or the other, it's everything. And so it's so important right now in the world in which we're living to be totally grounded in God's word and to have that as the basis of truth. It's the only source of truth. Jesus is the truth. And so if you're not standing on the truth, you will be deceived. It's why a lot of believers go astray to false doctrines, to false teachings, to false prophecies, they interpret the word of God incorrectly, whatever it is, but they're led astray because they hear someone say something and they're not clinging to the truth. They're not in it themselves to know that doesn't sit right with the word of God. So I know that's not truth because it's the only source of truth. In John 17 and 1 John 5, he's the only true God. You know, his word is true in Psalms 119. Thy word is true from the beginning, and everyone, uh, every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And so the word was true from the beginning. And it's just interesting, the in the beginning 
It's the same thing in Genesis 1 and John 1, right? In the beginning was the word. So his word was truth from the beginning. And his word is what spoke everything we see around us into existence. His word is what put it all back together after the fall of the angels. His word is alone truth. And that's why 10 times in Genesis 1 it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, because his word was truth from the beginning and put it all back together again. Okay, the last attribute of Jesus here in the, in the opening letter to Philadelphia, he that hath the key of David. So the key of David only shows up one other place in the entire Bible. And it's Isaiah chapter 22. And it shall come to pass in that day that I'll call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Okay, so at the beginning... It starts out, the passages start out speaking of Eliakim, but I want you to notice how messianic this turns very quickly. Okay, it's clear that the God of the universe goes on and he's not speaking of Eliakim anymore. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. That sounds pretty familiar. Uh, there's only one I know that he fastened as a nail in a sure place to make sure that the penalty for our sin was paid in full once and forever. That's Jesus. And he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house, and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. And this, it's speaking of something that's yet to happen at this time, which is the crucifixion of our Lord, of Jesus himself being nailed to a sure place, the burden that was on him. What was that burden? Well, that burden was every sin, past, present, and future, that's ever been committed in all of mankind. At the central point of all history, where even the world itself chronicles history in B.C. and A.D. around that time of the appearance of the creator himself who stepped into his creation to call a people out for himself, right, to pay that penalty. It, the entire history of mankind revolves around that moment. And yet here it is, Jesus, the burden that was on him shall be cut off because he doesn't have to die again. It was once and forever. For everything that was ever done before, everything that's ever done now, and everything that will ever be done. It was paid at that moment in all of history. So the Lord clearly is speaking of Eliakim at first, but the tone turns very Jesus. It turns to the Messiah very quickly in that, those passages. And what, what is the key of David all about? Well, in those days, Eliakim, he carried a large, heavy key over his shoulder. And it was a symbol that key represented access to the king. So that key represented, he didn't really need a key, right, to go unlock the door. It was a symbol that the key of David, the access to the king of the royal line, was through Eliakim. That was the symbol, the symbology of it. 
and it showed his power to grant or to, to deny others an audience with the king. And so it speaks exactly as a type of Jesus. Again, it's embodied at the start of this letter. So, so Jesus alone provided access to that throne room. And at the start of the letter, go back to John 14. Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So our access to the throne room is through Jesus alone. You know, it's that same typology of he alone grants access to the king. You have to go through Jesus to get to the king. There is no other way. Any other way is, is a thief and a robber and a liar. So he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. So the closing, the closing phrase of that verse Again, it's referenced in Isaiah 22 as a type. Remember, it's speaking of the, the one with the key of David. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And it also hearkens to next week to the last letter of the seven churches, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door, this is Jesus speaking, and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And it's a call to a personal relationship with the Lord. That's what that verse 20 is all about. If any man openeth, you know, it's, it's a personal call to open that door to Jesus, let him come into your life and have fellowship with you. And if Jesus is opening the door, you want to be sure you walk through that door. You know, you, and it's amazing to me as Christians how much time we spend trying to open and walk through doors that Jesus has shut. And he doesn't want us to waste our time and energy on that door. You know, quit trying to kick open a door that the God of the universe has shut and said, okay, I need you to go on to something different. Don't go that way. You know, think about Balaam back in Numbers 21. We, we looked at that a few weeks back in, the, in one of the letters. But, you know, Balaam went to God and asked him over and over, can I go do this? And God said, no. You know, basically say, that door is shut. Don't go through there. That door shut, that door shut, and then finally he said, okay, well, I'm sovereign, I've got, to, I've got to give you your free will, if you want to walk that door, go ahead, but it's not going to work very well for you, and of course it didn't. So our goal is to turn, is to try to go through doors that Jesus has opened for us. Okay, so there is no concern for this church. Remember last week, the letter to, the letter to Sardis, we jumped right into um, the concern. This week, we jump right into the commendation. There is, no there is no concern for the church of Philadelphia. And we're going to look at, it, at why. But starting in verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And so here's Jesus giving, starting what's going to be several verses of commendations for this church. And there are a lot of open doors in the Bible. So he says here, I have set before thee an open door. Okay, 1 Corinthians 16, for a great and effectual door is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. In 2 Corinthians 12, furthermore, when I came to Tros to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. So this whole concept, okay, get the concept of these people are going out and spreading the gospel and Jesus is opening doors for them to further the mission of spreading the gospel. In Colossians 4, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us 
a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds or as a bond slave, a doulos. We talked about that in chapter one. Okay, but there's also some closed doors in the Bible. So Genesis chapter seven, this is of the ark of Noah, Noah's ark. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Okay, it's one of those things where when the time to accept Jesus is over, that door will close and he calls the bride home in the rapture. Okay, it's going to be very difficult for those that remain to accept the Lord during that time that we're going to get into starting in chapter 4. The 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. It, the door will be open for them to be saved, but it's very difficult. You want to make sure you're in the ark now before the door closes so you can go home and get out of here with the Lord. And so the Lord, it's just, it's interesting. It's always been interesting to me that God shut the door to the ark. You know, and it's amazing when you do the genealogies and the number of people that lived at that time, there were likely billions and billions of people on planet earth. And yet only eight went into the ark. You know, and, and when that door closed, all theological debate ended, right? All theological debate of, God's not going to do that. God doesn't intervene in man's history. God isn't going to flood the earth and wipe out everyone for rejecting him. All of that debate ended in a heartbeat. They go in, seven days later, it starts. And it's interesting that number seven, this is also linked. They were in the ark for 150 days, which only shows up one other place in the Bible. It's Revelation chapter nine. And we're going to see that it's also as a judgment against a Christ-rejecting world. And so it's just fascinating that only eight, only eight of billions of people accepted God's provision for them to survive and to have a relationship with him. Okay, Matthew 25, this is speaking of the wedding. Okay, when you get back to, you go, we'll go through the seven-year tribulation, we come back with Jesus in Revelation 19. Okay, and Jesus has that 75-day period in Daniel where he will set up the kingdom. You have the sheep and goat judgment of the, how the nations treated Israel. And then the, the marriage supper to the lamb. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Okay, what's speaking of is there's only one group of people throughout the entire history of the world that are spoken of as the bride of Christ. And it's us, the church. So there were believers all through the Old Testament. There are believers after the church ends in the rapture. But only in that little, this little time period that we're in, from Acts 2 until the close of the church, where Jesus brings us home, only that is the bride of Christ. The, the church, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. It's a very unique relationship that we share with the Lord. You know, someday we'll get up there and we'll figure out why did he structure it that way. But when you think about it, before Jesus came and you were a believer, the Holy Spirit never indwelled them. You know, that's why David prayed, take thy spirit not from me. The Holy Spirit would come and go in this peculiar time period that's lasted almost 2,000 years of the church. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are the temple of God right now. And once that temple of God is removed, the Holy Spirit's removed, the restrainer, the comforter, God once again begins to work on the planet Earth through the nation Israel one last time. 
just like he did previously. And of course, on the open and closed doors, Jesus says, I am the door in John 10, 7 and 9. And you can even hearken that back to the tabernacle in the wilderness as they roamed around. There was only one door to get in because in that represented Jesus. He was the door to get in and have fellowship with the Lord. Okay, so the commendation continues in verse 8. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And so they had a little strength left after clinging to God's word, being tried continually, and still not denying him. Right? So they were going through a lot in this time period. And they were clinging on to what little they had left and still not denying his name. Remember, the church at Sardis last week was the total opposite. They, they denied his name quickly when things got rough. So this church is doing great. They're holding on. And that should be our same life's missions personally and as a church is to not deny him no matter what happens. Right. We've got to stay strong. And I love how the theme continues through these seven letters of. Finishing strong is the name of the game. And there's just so many people throughout the Bible who didn't do that. Okay, Revelation 3, verse 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So the same reference is found in the other church letter that has nothing bad said about it. This synagogue of Satan, this concept. When you go back to the church at Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9, we looked at that. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So you have the same reference in the two letters that have nothing bad said about them. And so at some point, everyone will worship Jesus. And we see that in Philippians chapter 2. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the question comes down to, will you worship him and bow that knee now when it's a choice? Or will you do it at some point when it's forced when you come face to face with your creator. You know, that's the, that's the option before us. Because there will come a point when if you have not accepted Jesus and you take your last breath, you will come face to face with the man that spoke you into existence, that fearfully and wonderfully knit you in the womb and that had your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever created. There will come that time. And what you want to make sure you do is to accept him and bow that knee in submission to him before that time. Because when you get there, if you don't know him, it will be a moment that will be the pivotal point of your eternity. And you will realize you missed it. You know, this man spoke you into existence and all he is pleading with you for is a relationship. A relationship with the God of the universe. And... Every religion on earth wants something of you in return. And Christianity is the only one, the only true one, that says, that Jesus says, I've done it all. I just want a relationship with you. You know, that I, I'm not asking you to die for me. I'm not asking you to go out and do works on my behalf. 
I'm not asking for anything other than you to bow a knee and accept what I did on your behalf. You know, to pave a way for you to have fellowship with me. And so what is this with these who say they are Jews but are not? You know, there is, for the last couple hundred years, really there's been a dangerous heresy in the church called replacement theology. And not to get bogged down in it too much, basically what they, that they teach and say is that the church, when the Jews rejected Jesus, when he was in that on riding down the donkey, when he showed up personally in the Gospels, when they rejected him, that all of their promises fell to the church. You know, that's what they try to propagate and teach. And they call it replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel and God's program. And the problem with that is that when you go back and you look at every promise the Lord made to Israel, there are so many of them that are totally unconditional. You know, there are so many of them that have no condition tied to them. The land grant to Abraham. There's no condition on that. In fact, God puts Abraham asleep and God alone makes the figure eight through the sacrifice, walking through and reciting the terms of the covenant, of the contract. Abraham had nothing to do with it. He's asleep and God's saying, I've given you this land, and he recounts it to all of his descendants throughout the Old Testament. Now, we either believe God or we don't, right? He's either a man of his word or he's not. And I have found him personally in my life to be a man that holds his word. And when he tells Abraham, I'm, I've given you this land to your descendants, there will come a point when Israel maintains that land. From the river Euphrates through Egypt to the river, I'm sorry, through uh, Iraq. To the river Nile through Egypt. That's the, the land. Okay, right now they occupy one tenth the size of the state of Oklahoma. And yet the entire world is up in arms on why are they allowed to have that land? You know what? They're, they're not a threat to anyone. They have no major natural resources, no major natural port. They have nothing other than God's promise that He would pull them back together in the land again, which we saw miraculously in. May 14th of 1948, when they became a nation, you know, Isaiah sarcastically says, can the Lord form a nation in a day? And that's exactly what he did on May 14th, 1948. He brought them back into the land and formed a nation, fulfilling hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. Every prophecy of Jesus showing up the first time, he's kept. You know, he's a man of his word. And so when he promises to Israel, I'm going to give you this land, He's going to do it, and we're going to watch him do it. It's, it could be in the millennium, but it's theirs. They, they partition the land, and if you read the back half of Ezekiel, it goes through how Jesus partitions the land to them in the millennium. That may be the fulfillment of it. We'll see. But my point is, when you go through the Bible, pay attention that God's program with Israel is unconditional. They're his people. He chose to, to bring out through them, how to have fellowship and relationship with him to the entire world. And yet, yes, they denied him, and they've been put in the penalty box, so to speak, for a short time while he forms the church in this unique relationship. But when he calls us home, he once again works through the planet Earth, through Israel, for all of the Earth once again. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, the 70th week of Daniel. All of those things. So this whole... This whole concept of the church replacing Israel, I think I personally, when you read about the church and our destiny, I'd rather be in the church, you know, myself, but 
hey, if you want to, if you want to try to be there, um, God will explain it to you when we get to the throne room. So in Revelation 3, verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Okay, this word from, this is a very unique promise. This is what I'm talking about to cling on to as the church for us. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. Okay, the word from is ek in the Greek. And it literally means out of or away from. It's a removal from the very time. Okay, notice Jesus' promise to us. He's not saying, hey, I will preserve you through that tribulation time that's to come upon all the earth. I'm going to literally remove you from it, from the very time of, not hide you somewhere on the earth to preserve you during. It's removing you from the dimensionality of time and into a place with he who inhabited eternity. Okay, to remove you from it. And so this hour of temptation is known by a lot of labels throughout the Bible. It's the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah, the 70th week of Daniel in the book of Daniel. It's the day of the Lord all through the Old Testament. It's the tribulation. Jesus actually defines the great tribulation as the back half of those three and a half, those seven year period. So in the middle of that seven year period is the abomination which causes desolation in the back half, the back three and a half years is what Jesus labels as the great tribulation. So, you know, we generically give the entire seven-year period that label of the great tribulation, and Jesus really defines the back half as that. Don't misunderstand me. The whole seven-year period is horrible, and praise God that he's promising to keep us from the very hour of it. But to be specific, as Jesus was, it's the back half that's the great tribulation. And notice that it comes upon the entire world. Not just Israel, not the U.S., not Europe, but the whole world. And why? Why upon all of the world? Well, it's to try them that dwell upon the earth. Those who identify with the world in Philippians 3, Hebrews 11, and you can have hundreds of verses on this. But when we get into the book of Revelation further down, there's a group of people you'll notice over and over that God calls the earth dwellers. You know, it's basically those who have their worth and their allegiance tied to the earth, not tied to the one who created the earth. You know, it's almost like worshiping the creation and not the creator. You know, it's that kind of same concept. And so there is a prerequisite to Jesus' return. And this is one of many verses to know that he's not finished with the nation Israel. It's in Hosea 5.15. I, this is Jesus speaking, first person singular. I will go and return to my place, which means he left it, he came down, he died for us, and he, went, he was in the tomb three days. He rose again by the power of the Holy Ghost, and he ascended to heaven. So I will go and return to my place, okay, which means he left it and he did all of that to return. Until... They, and the they there is speaking of Israel specifically. When you read through the book of Hosea, it's very clear. But until they acknowledge their offense. Okay, now they mean Israel. What was their offense? Their offense was they had the entire Old Testament, which is 77% of God's word by word count. And yet they denied when he showed up to fulfill hundreds of prophecies on time, on schedule. They denied him. 
That was their offense. They rejected their Messiah. See, he would have ushered in the kingdom right then had they accepted him. And he told them that. I would have sent John the Baptist if he would have accepted me. I would have sent Elijah instead. But they rejected him. That's the offense. Their offense. It's singular again. And seek my face. Okay, until they acknowledge their offense for rejecting me. And they seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. And when you look at the Hebrew, that word literally means earnestly. With great anticipation. You know, with urgency. They will seek me. And so there's a lot of reasons why the 70th week of Daniel is going to happen, that time of tribulation. One of them is to drive Israel to the brink to acknowledge and repent and seek him. And Hosea 6 is their prayer to him when they cry out to God. And they cry out and immediately when they get pushed to that point, they cry out to him. And that's when Revelation 19, we come back with him. He comes to save them. And so it's, it's a very, this is probably the most exciting book of the Bible to study, is Revelation. Because again, it's going to take us into literally every book of the Bible. And all of these unfulfilled promises are going to come to pass. You know, everything that Jesus talks about in the Old Testament, it finishes with promises of a kingdom, promises for Israel and the land, promises of them being his people. All these promises, you know, that are hanging out there are going to be fulfilled. So the exhortation, chapter, chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So you have something already that you can lose. You know, as a member of the church, we've talked about this so much. He's not talking about your salvation. He's talking about your rewards and things that you've done as an overcomer of the world that you have waiting for you in heaven. Right, hold fast, hold on to what you've earned in my in my stead, in my name, that no man takes it from you. And he's again, this has nothing to do with your salvation. It's a reward. Various crowns, various promises to the overcomer, responsibilities in the kingdom. This concept of losing your stature is all through the Bible. You know, from it's all through the Old Testament. Uh, Esau lost his place to Jacob in Genesis. Reuben lost his place to Judah. You know, Reuben was the firstborn. Firstborn was supposed to get a double portion and a lot of different rights as the firstborn. He lost it to Judah. Joshua took Moses' place to usher them into the promised land. Remember, Moses was supposed to lead them. He rejects God's word, and thus he lost his opportunity to do that. David took Saul's authority. Shebna lost his place to Eliakim. We just read about him in Isaiah 22. Joab and Abathar lost their places to Benaiah and Zadok. Elijah, Elijah, remember he's in a cave and he's crying out to God, Lord, I'm the only one left that's following you. You know, that's some pride built up in his heart. And so God said, okay, that's it, Elijah. I've got to bring you home. Elisha uh, is going to take your spot. And it's interesting when you read, Elisha pleaded for a double portion. And when you go through the Old Testament, you count the number of amazing miracles chronicled in the Bible. He does twice as many as Elijah. So he, he actually got what he prayed for, which is just fascinating. But that's all in 1 Kings 19. Jesus is bringing us home quickly. And so what he's telling them is stay strong, hold fast, do not deny him. This word quickly in the Greek, it literally means without delay, rapidly. It's the root 
where we get the English word tachometer. You know, you think about a tachometer in your truck or your vehicle, when you're driving, it's measuring the revolutions per minute, and as it goes up, things are speeding up quickly. Okay, that's what Jesus is talking about, that once it starts, it's going to happen very rapidly. Okay, so the closing of the letter, the promise to the overcomer, and the closing phrase, these are the last two verses of the letter, verse 12 and 13. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. And I love how this letter had nothing bad said about it, and it's tied to the founding of our church, the New Jerusalem, the new city, right, that God is preparing for us from John 14 right now. Which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So the idea of a new name is all through this book in Revelation. It's in chapter 14, chapter 19, verses 12 through 13, verse 16, chapter 22, verse 4. So this new name. Remember, back to the promises to the overcomer, I have a white stone with a new name on it, which no man knoweth except he that receives it. So all through the Bible, God has for us as his people a new name. You know, he has a name. For us, uh, Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, uh, Saul became Paul. All of these names throughout the Bible, these great men of the Bible, these great people, God gives them a new name because he has a name for you of what you mean to him. You know, it's amazing. I cannot wait to see. I cannot wait to see what our new names are at that point. But again, the closing phrase is after the promise to be overcomer. So we had, remember the first four letters, the I'm sorry, the first three, the, the closing phrase was embodied in the letter with the promise afterwards. Here we've got the last ones, the, the closing phrase is after the promise to be overcomer. And so it's structurally different. And Jesus wants us to know that, hey, there's part of these churches that are going to survive until I bring them home. Okay, so there are only two of these seven letters that have nothing bad said about them, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And these are the only two letters with explicit references to crowns as, reward, as rewards. And I thought that was interesting structurally, too, that these two letters that Jesus has no rebuke for, he references the crowns for the overcomer. Because Smyrna and Philadelphia, they are overcoming in a big way on his behalf. And so in Revelation 2.10... Back to Smyrna, he talks about the crown of life. And here in chapter 3, he references, Hold fast that no man take thy crown. Philadelphia was situated on the road from Rome to Pergamos and Sardis. So it literally was a gateway on this highway to the high central area of Asia Minor, to Turkey and beyond. And thus it was a gateway to the east and the west. You know, a lot of traffic came through here. It was a gateway, a central hub for the gospel to go out you know, to the east and to the west. And so when you look at the, the structure of that, it's amazing because in the prophetic profile of the churches, remember we had Ephesus, the apostolic church. We had from Acts 2. We had Smyrna as the persecuted church. We had uh, Pergamos, the church that married the world. 
Then we have Thyatira, that Jezebel spirit raised up in that perverted marriage. And then we had Sardis, uh, the medieval times type church, the, the Reformation denominational churches, and now Philadelphia is kind of that period representing the missionary outreach church throughout the prophetic profile. And it's just interesting that geographically, that's exactly what this church was, the city. It was a missionary outreach to the east to connect Rome and to the east. And so the personal application, uh, can you go back one round? Sorry. Personal application, Ephesus was neglecting priorities. Smyrna was, uh, was withstanding satanic opposition. Pergamos avoiding spiritual compromise. Thyatira did not let evil take root. Sardis to remain faithful, ever watching for Jesus. And Philadelphia, that open door, as you're ever watching, that open door to share the gospel, to get the missionary outreach going. And then the application to all churches, uh, Ephesus, remember they lost their first love. So it was prioritizing their devotion, not just doctrine. Smyrna, enduring persecution. Pergamus, purifying your ambassadorship. So don't marry the world. Don't have that perverted marriage to the world. Thyatira is to root out all pagan practices. Get rid of that Jezebel spirit out of your church. Sardis was to remain diligent in teaching God's word and watchfulness. And Philadelphia, that open gateway for the gospel to get the word of God out there. Okay, so it's interesting, and yeah, I mentioned this, but the promise of the overcomer is tied to that new city, the new Jerusalem. And, and I just love that the last couple of letters we looked at have been tied to something that Jesus literally told our church in the founding of it. And as Jesus said at the founding of this church, everything this church does will be to further that new city. So that new city that Jesus went to go prepare for us. Hey, we may be small. We may be, uh, we may not be ever become a mega church. I have no idea what God has for us, but we are going to build up ambassadors for the kingdom. You know, people that are rooted in the foundation of God's word. And if the entire world is gone and it's just us in this room that, have, that are still clinging to Jesus, then bring it. You know, let's, let's stay rooted in his word and further that new Jerusalem, that new city. Again, eight people entered the ark. And in 2020, the Lord was sifting his church, getting all the people that don't really want to be a, an ambassador for him out. You know, this is no longer a time to be lukewarm for Jesus. This is not a time where you can just mosey through life in this gray area serving the Lord without joyfully and faithfully declaring the king, you know, and, and knowing God's word. The world is hungry for truth, and all they, all they are finding is a lot of not truth, you know, untruth. They're finding and grasping onto things that are so untrue, and it's why in a famine, people literally will consume anything. They just want something to try to fill a void, and what we need to do is to bring the truth to the world. So uh, that's why I'm just so excited that there's people somehow finding us all over the world as New City Church online, and we'll see where God takes us. But Revelation 21 chronicles the new Jerusalem, our forever home as the church, as the bride of Christ. That's our forever home. And that's what this church is all about. So to close, if you do not know Jesus and you want to make sure you have a home in the new Jerusalem, that new city from God that is going to be the most magnificent place. 
you could ever lay your eyes on. I mean, if God spoke the world and recreated it in six days, imagine what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years of this city. The creator himself expertly tailoring a place for you and for me and for our children and for our loved ones and our family members. It's going to be unspeakable. But if you want to make sure you have a place in that new city, it's simple. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. All he's asking is that you accept the gift that he's extending. That's it. And Romans 10.9 speaks this very clearly. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not if you do such and such. Not if you do that and then go out and get baptized. Not if you do that and then you give to the churches. Not if you do that and you go take care of the widows and the orphans. All of that comes after you're saved and you have a personal relationship with the king. What he's saying is all you need to do is confess. Bow the knee. Confess with your mouth that I am Lord and I will forever indwell you. And I will teach you and I want a relationship with you. And I want you to have fellowship with me. You walk through that open door so you can make sure your name is secured and you have a home in the new Jerusalem. And once you do that and you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you come alive for the first time in your life. You come alive. Everything that you thought you knew that was bogging you down, you have the power to cast it at the feet of Jesus in the throne room of the universe and lay it before him and let him take that burden that you were never intended to carry. You know, he created you expertly to carry something, and it's not what you are carrying currently if you don't know him. And so if you're watching this around the world and you need to know Jesus, reach out to us. There's a way that you can click a link. There's a way that you can email us. Um, you can find us online. We can help you. But the most important decision you can ever make is that one before it's too late. It's the decision to commit your life to forever to Jesus and for him to make you. He's got a wing in the new city waiting for those people that need him. And he, all he's doing is just begging and pleading for them. He's ever chasing after them. And so do that today without delay. You know, he can save you from the uttermost. And so if you have prayer requests, salvation questions, there's our email address. New City Church, OKC at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us online on YouTube and Vimeo, the church online platform. And when you stream the, the messages that will stream on that church online platform, they post on YouTube and Vimeo after they stream. So you can go back and look at the archive messages if you want to go back. Uh, with that, we'll close in a word of prayer. Uh, most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the audience here today. We pray that those families that could not be with us, that you safeguard them as they travel. We have many of our families that are out of town that, are, that have had work issues come up. Things are happening, and we just pray that you'd be with them, that you would care for them, that they would circle back, Lord, and just listen to this message later in the week, and that, God, they would be blessed by it. As we close out the message to the seven churches that you personally pinned, Jesus, as we go through the last letter next week, in the letter to Laodicea, we pray, God, that you would deliver a special message to us in the time in which we live. 
in the time in which we live in a society that, for the most part, the church has become apathetic and lukewarm. And we just pray that next week as we study that final letter that you deliver something special to us. God, if there are those around the world watching that need you desperately, Lord, we are praying for their salvation. Your will in the, in the word of God is very clear that you will that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. And God, in 1 John 5, anything that we pray according to your will, you will hear us from heaven, and you go out and you act on that. And so, God, we are praying for the salvation of those watching that do not know you, that you would reach down off your throne and that you would save them from the uttermost and that you would cling to them and let them feel that overjoyed love that only you offer, that peace that surpasses all understanding. God, you did not give us a spirit of fear, but of sound mind. And so, Lord, we pray that sound mind upon all of those watching and upon those in those rooms today. Lord, be with us as we go to this place. Let us serve you in a mighty way. Thank you for what you're doing at New City Church. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.